awaytravel.com. Summer, like you mean it. Favorites, the figure carry-on flux, the everywhere bag, the hanging toiletry bag, 100-day trial, free shipping and reward terms designed to last. We want you to love our products if you buy one and decide it's not for you. Return it for a full refund. Exclusions apply. Check website at awaytravel.com for details. What Away Travel believes. Uh, away, we believe that the more we travel, the better we all become. That's why we partner with organizations to create inevitable access to the transformative benefits of travel. City guides and travel stores for your next stop. Away made a relatively boring necessity into an enviable statement piece at an affordable price. Condé Nast Traveler. What fellow travelers are saying, I love Away from the thoughtfully created products to the customer service team that seems to go above and beyond everything exactly how I'd want it to be. I've taken my luggage to Paris, San Francisco, New Mexico, Indonesia. I have never traveled more at ease. If there was a higher rating than a 10, I'd give it. The best brand in my collection and always my first choice when traveling. Good morning. Hope you had a good week. This is chapter 14 of American Dirt by Jean, Janine Cummins. Six days and 282 miles from absolute calamity, Lydia and Luca take their leave from Huey Huey Toka and head north once again following the trail of La Bestia. When Lydia considers how they managed to survive the last week to get this far from Agapoco remain alive, her mind ceases because she knows she's made good and bad decisions in those six days and that ultimately it's only by the grace of God that none of those choices have met with bad luck and resulted in catastrophe. That awareness incapacitates her. She can't conceive of a plan, plan to board the train, which is what they must do. They must get on the train. Meanwhile, walking will give her time to think. They filled their canteens before they left the shelter, but they stop at a small shop down the road and Lydia jams a bag with snacks because it's a shop that's used to migrants. They stock the kinds of things that migrants can carry and eat nuts, apples, candy, granola chips, carne seca. Lydia buys as much as she can fit in her pack. She buys a floppy hat too, pink with white flowers to protect her neck from the sun. It reminds her of her of the ugly thing Mama used to put on when she gardened and any time Lydia and Yemi caught their month of wearing it, they would hit, hit her and tease. You laugh, but this hat is the reason I have the skin of a 24-year-old. Their mother had, would chide them. Back outside, the freight tracks stretch out across the Mexican landscape like a beanstalk. Migrants must climb. And look at Mamie go step by step, tie by tie, leaf by leaf. The sun is bright, but not too hot this early in the day. They hold hands briefly and then sweat and suffer. And then the second repeat, they take the westernmost route because Lucas' mind map was convinced that well, that way was longer than the others. The relative topography would be kinder if they end up making much of the journey by foot. As it appears they might, he's glad Mamie didn't press him to explain his dis- instinct and she simply yielded to the gentle pressure of his, of his hand as they set it as they set off. Lydia knows that her plan to go to Denver is inadequate, that it might be difficult to 
track down her tío Gustavo Abuelo Abuela used to complain that her baby brother had turned into a gringo when he left for El Norte all those years ago when he was still a young man and never looked back. Lydia knows only that he, her tío, married a white lady, changed his name to Gus and started his own company, something in construction. Was it plumbing or electric? And what if he changed his last name too? She'd never met his children, her primos, Yankees. She doesn't know, even know their names. Even when she dwells too long on these facts, she begins to panic, or so she strips it all back to manageable step-by-step pieces, move north, reach the border, find a coyote, get across, take a bus to Denver. There will be clutches there. There will be churches there, libraries, internet access, immigrant communities, people willing to help. For now, just move north, move north, get Luca out of danger. The couple hours walk north is a migrant shelter. Luca and Mamie encounter two teenage sisters wearing matching rainbow wristbands on their under the left arm, sitting on an overpass above the train tracks and dangling their feet below. Both girls are very beautiful, but the slightly older one is dangerously tall. She wears baggy clothing and and, and an intense scowl and a failing ever to express that calamitous, calamitous beauty. The younger one leans back on her stuffed backpack, but they both sit up. When they see Luca, they studied hardness. The studied hardness of their expression melts together. They make the O of cuteness that teenage girls often emit for smaller children. Mira cake waffle, the younger sister sings out in an unfamiliar accent. So cute, the older one agrees. They both have abundant black hair, stark, expressive eyebrows, dark, penetrating eyes, perfectly aligned, teeth, full lips, and apple-shaped cheeks. The older one has something extra, something undefinable that makes her entirely arresting. Luca fixes his eyes on her accidentally and cannot seem to remove his gaze once it's alighted upon her. Mamie does too. The girl is so beautiful she seems almost to glow more colorful than the landscape in which she sits. The dingy gray of the concrete overpass, the pebble brown of the tracks of the earth, she faded blue of her baggy jeans, the dirty white of her oversized t-shirt, the bleached arc of the sky, all of it all recedes behind her. Her presence is a vivid throb of color that deflates everything else around her, an accident of biology, a living miracle of splendor, it's a real problem. Oye, adonde van amigos? The less beautiful one calls out to them when they're directly beneath her feet. Where everyone goes, Lydia says, shielding her eyes so she can look up at the girls above them. To El Norte, she reminds, she removes the ugly pink hat that from her head and uses it to fan herself. Beneath her, her sweaty hair sticks to her forehead. Us too, she says, swinging their her feet. Your son is so cute. Lydia looks over at Luca, who's smiling up at the girls. The most genuine smile that has escaped his face since the morning of Jennifer's quince anera. My name is Rebecca, and this is my sister Soledad. The girl speaks to, to Luca directly. Como te llamas, chiquito? Lydia, who's fallen to the habit of answering for her son, opens mouth to reply that. But Luca, Luca, he says, his voice clearer like a bell. No hint of rust from all those days without use. Lydia snaps her mouth shut in surprise. How old are you, Luca? Rebecca asks. I'm eight years old. The sisters look at each other with admiration, animation, and the younger one claps her hands together. I knew it. Just exactly the same age as our little cousin at home. His name is Juanito. He looks like you. Doesn't he look like Juanito Sol? Soleil? 
Hello, dog. The beauty smells lovely. He does. She admits, like twins. You want to see his picture? Rebecca asks. Rebecca asks. Michael looks at Mamie, who's been very cautious about stopping to talk with people, but these girls have returned her boy's voice to him. She knows. Come up, Rebecca says. She removes a fragile plastic bag of wrapped photographs from the front pocket of her sister's backpack and flips through them. Lucas scrubs up to join the girls on the overpass while Mamie watches from below. She tries to survey their location with the seam of land cut by the tracks where it makes a poor vantage point for visibility, so she follows Lucas up the steep sandy little hill. The girls aren't actually sitting on an overpass at all, but on the metal grate that sticks off the roadway on one side of the overpass like a hazardous catwalk. Lydia tests it with her foot before stepping over. Lucas squats on the roadway side, leaning his elbows on the low guardrail. Rebecca leans back against this, and together they stare at the pictures. See, she says, Guapo Como 2. Lucas grins again and asks, He does look like me, Mamie. Look, he says, except no teeth. Rebecca holds the photograph so Lydia can see. He lost those two both on the same day, and then he was like a vampire, the girl says to Luca. Did you lose yours yet? A potent memory, it limbs up unbidden. Pippi pulling his first tooth and a bottom one from the middle. The tooth had been loose for weeks, and then one night during dinner, Luca took a bite of his tampi Kenya, and a point of paint shot through his gums. He dropped his fork, removed the food to the back of his mouth, swallowed it in an unchewed lump, and then examined the damage. The tooth he found had been pushed askew. It leaned like an ancient grave in soft ground. He touched it softly with one finger and was horrified by its slackness. Mamie and Pappy both put down their forks to watch, but Luke was so afraid of the pain that he found himself unable to do anything, and then Mamie had, tied, had tried for, for 20 minutes to coax him to open his mouth just a little too she could have a look. Luke was steadfast and mute. His lips clamped shut. Mamie finally lost her precious paper ease into place beside Luca. He made funny faces intended to illustrate what happened to children who didn't fall for the tender removal of rejected teeth. And Luca laughed despite his fear, and in the gap of that laughter, he finally admitted to opening, submitted to opening his little mouth while Mamie watched from across the table. Papi reached to in there to so gently Luca didn't even feel the presence of his fingers against the tooth, but he does remember Papi's hands along his face, one securely cupping his chin, the other reaching inside. Luca remembers the salty tang of Papi's fingers and the triumphant smile when those fingers emerged with the surprise of that tiny tooth. Luca's eyes popped so wide when he saw and he gasped. He couldn't believe there was no pain, no feeling at all. Pappy had simply reached in there and lifted the little thing out, and then all they, and then they all laughed and squealed at the table together. And Luca jumped out of his chair, disbelieving, and his parents both hugged and kissed him. He ate the rest of his tempe Kenya, while new hole in his mouth gathered small pieces of food he had to sluice out with milk. That night they left the tooth beneath his pillow and. Ratoncito Perez came to retrieve it, leaving Luca a palm and a new toothbrush in his place. Luca lifts one hand to his mouth now and stalks on his knuckle and sucks on his knuckle, but it's not the same. He has 
to bat at that memory like a pesky hot bug, a horsefly, the gum taste of his, of his father's hands made me see his reaches out and squeezes his toe through his sneaker and just a gentle pressure that brings him back to this dusky overpass. He breathes into his body. Couldn't get on the train, huh? Among the other things, Soledad has a gift for changing the subject at exactly the right moment. She's more tender than her sister, but it's hard to remain standoffish while looking there are also eyelashes and coy dimples. Lydia wriggles out of her pack, backpack and retrieves a canteen. Not yet, they've made it a lot harder. Says he first record discharges a puff of air that in another setting might pass for laughter. Yeah, Mamie shakes her head, safety. You might, you've been on the train, look at ass. Soledad twists to look at him, resting her chin on her shoulder all the way from Tepachula, more or less. Look at things of the ma- men running alongside the train in the clearing outside the chariot, the way they ascended one by one and disappeared while he and Mamie watched, unable to remove. He thinks of the deafening roar and clatter of La Bestia, shouting his warnings into their hearts and followed by the watch, and he feels awed by these two powerful sisters. How he has soldier shrugs. We've learned some tricks. Mamie hands Luca at the canteen and he drinks. Like what? Mamie asks. We need some tricks. Soldier retracts her clangling legs and folds them beneath her, shifting her spine and shoulders to a stretched posture. And Lydia sees, even in this minor animation of the girl's body, how the danger rattles off her. Renouncing the assistants haven't befriended anyone since they've been They too have kept them to themselves as much as possible, but they haven't yet met anyone so young as Luca on their journey. Neither have they met anyone so watchfully maternal as Lydia, so it was a great pleasure to feel normal for a minute to inhabit the softness of a friendly conversation. There can't be any harm in sharing some advice with their fellow travelers. Like this old dad says, gesturing at the tracks beneath them. One thing we've noticed is they spend all that money on fences around the train station, but nobody has a lot yet to fence the overpasses. Luca watches Mamie's face as she surveys her position now from the angle of this new formation. Mamie leans ever so lightly forward and gauges the distance to the ground beneath them. It's not that far, but then she tries to imagine how this face would change. With the noise and weight and presence of Lavicia charging through it, you board, you board from here, she says. She asks incredulously. Not here, so the crowd because you, you hit your head as you, soon as you drop. The overpass would knock you right off before you got your balance. We sit on this t- side to watch for it coming, but then you jump on over there. She points. Luca follows the direction of her gesture across the roadway, and he, and he sees there. Fixed to the guardrail, a bleached white cross with a burst of faded orange flowers at its center. Likely a memorial, he realized there was someone else who attempted to board the train at this place and didn't manage it. He bites his lips. You must jump. <coughs> you must jump on top. Well, not always. Sold outside. But yes, if it, if the conditions are right, you must jump on top. Well, and what makes the conditions right, Lady asked, are wrong. Well, the first thing is you have to choose carefully where to do. Yeah, so the place is good because you see, she says, standing and pointing across the roadway to the trucks beyond. You see the curve there just ahead. Lydia stands too so she can see where the girl is pointing. The train always slows down for a curve. When it's a big curve, it slows, slows way down so we know it'll be going slow when it passes. And then the next thing is to make sure there are no other hazards ahead. That's why we chose this overpass instead of the first one. Leah looks out back along the path while they 
just walked. She hadn't ever noticed that first pass when they'd walked beneath it. She'd only been grateful for its momentary shade, a shadow of spite from the sun. Decided, because if you jump on over there on that one, Rebecca adds, taking up the exposition for her sister, you'd only have a moment to get your balance before you'd have to hit the deck to pass beneath this one. Tricky. Lydia blinks her shake and shakes her head. She can't envision it. So we sit here so like it is. We watch, we wait for the train, and then we see one we like. We cross the road, we gauge the speed, and make the decision to board, and then we drop. Like going off a diving board, Luca asked. Thinking of the water park at El Rollo. Not exactly so. So first you lower your backpack because it makes you top heavy, wobbly, so you soft that first, and then you squat down really low. You don't tangle because if you do, your feet will get going with the train, and then your top half won't catch up. You get stretched like a slingshot, so you roll your body up small and hop on like a frog, low and tight, and just make sure your fingers grab something right away. Luca's heart is hammering in his chest just thinking about it. Here he, he reminds himself to breathe, then he looks at Mamie taking it in. Considering their likelihood of survival, he feels a sudden surge of manic energy coursing through his body, so he has to stand and spring and kick and let it loose into the world. If you get lucky, sometimes the train might even stop, Rebecca says, and then you just climb on. Simple. But there's plenty of times we let a train go by too. So that says, if it's moving fast, we don't even try. We've already seen two people who tried to board and didn't make it. Lydia looks at Luca to see how this information will affect him, but he gives nothing away. Were those two people boarding the same as you from the top like this? No, Rebecca seems almost proud. We're the only ones who board like this. I haven't seen anybody else do it. Lydia screws up her mouth, so these girls aren't either brilliant or insane. How many times have you done this, she asks. Her sisters look at, look at each other and it's sold out who answers. Five, maybe six? Lydia lets out a deep, low breath. She nods, okay. You want to come with us, Rebecca asks. It's not until after the words are out that she glances at her sister, remembering they're always supposed to check with each other first about everything. Soledad reaches the top of Rebecca's head and adjusts to reassure her sister in the language of the lifelong intimate that is fine. Maybe, Lydia answers, with only the hitch in her lungs as she expels the word. They talk a little while they wait, and Lydia learns that the girls are 15 and 14 years old, that they've traveled over a thousand miles so far, that they miss their family very much, and that they've never been on their own before. They don't say why they left home, and Lydia don't ask. Lydia doesn't ask. They both remind her of Jennifer, though it's probably only their age. The sisters are taller and more slender, darker skin than her niece, and both are luminous and funny. Jennifer had been a studious and solemn. Even as a baby, she'd have a certain gravity to her. Lydia's oldest is a Yemi, had selected Lydia, who was just 17 the year before their father died, and Jennifer was born to be the girl's godmother. Lydia remembers holding the baby over the baptismal font and crying. She made sure not to wear mascara that day so she wouldn't stain that baptismal dress. She'd known she would cry, not from joy or the honor of being the godmother or the emotion of the moment, but because the father wasn't there to see it, so Lydia's own tears had spotted across the child's forehead along with the holy water, and Lydia and was surprised to see through the blur of her vision that the baby in her arms didn't join her 
in her tears, Jennifer's eyes were wide and blinking, her mouth a perfect and puckered pink pool. Lydia loved that baby so much that she couldn't imagine she'd ever love her own child more. When Lydia, when Luca was born years later, Lydia learned the incomparability of that kind of love, of course, but it all, but it was still Jennifer, that somber shining girl, who had allayed her grief when she lost the second baby. Wise little Jennifer, at nine years old, who cried with her and struck her for her and reassured her that you have to have a daughter, Tia, you have me. But you do have a daughter, Tia, you have me. The enormity of Lydia's loss is incomprehensible. There are so many griefs at once that she doesn't separate them. She can't feel them besides her. The sisters talk quietly to Luca, and he responds with his reanimated words. There's an effervescence among them that feels extraordinary. The sounds of Luca's voice is an elixir. The sun feels hotter than when they're sitting still, and Lydia notices that her arms are as tan as childhood. Luca, too, is a shade browner than usual, and there are thoughts of perspiration all along his hairline beneath Sebastian's cap, that the weight beneath the sun, the sapping sun, is almost too brief. Lydia thinks she could have used more time to talk herself into this. It's not even two hours before the distant rumble of the train grows into their consciousness, and all four of them arise without speaking and begin to ready themselves. In truth, Lydia is in no way convinced that they're actually going to go through with it. She hopes they do because they need to be on that train, and she hopes they don't because she doesn't want to die. She doesn't want Luca to die. She feels as if she's outside her own body, listening to that train approach and moving her backpack to the other side of the roadway, prompting Luca along in front of her. She packs their canteen into the front pocket of her backpack and zips it up. Even if she felt confident that she could jump onto a moving train, how can she ask her son to do this crazy thing? Her shoulders feel loose, her legs erratic beneath her. Adrenaline loses all through her jittery body. Beside her, Luca follows a crack in the asphalt beneath his sneakers. He keeps his eyes and thoughts fixed on the minutiae. He leaves it to Mamie to take in by the sweep of the trask at hand. The dun colored grasses and scrubby trees crowding the embankment, the dome of blue overhead to the overpass and train tracks intersecting like a cross. The wind buzzes through Luca's hair as the noise of the train grows closer. The booming clatter and the reverberation of those monster wheels hauling themselves along the metal of the track. Metal of the track. The, the very loudness of that noise seems to sign as a warning that enters through her, your ears but lodges in your sternum. Stay away, stay away, stay away. Don't be crazy, don't be crazy, don't be crazy. Luca holds his back foot by the top handle low in front of him. With both hands, there's one kid at school who's a daredevil. His name is Pilar. Her name is Pilar. And she's always doing crazy stunts. She leaps from the very top of the jungle gym. She flies from the highest arc of the swing. Once she climbed a tree beside the school gate and shimmied out on an upper limb or from from where she climbed onto the roof of the school building, she did cartwheels up there until she, the principal called her above to come talk her down, but not even Pilar would jump onto a moving train from an overpass, Luca thinks. Pilar would never in a million years believe steady rule following Luca capable of participating in such business. He watches the, the nose of the train approach and disappear beneath the southern edge of the roadway. He turns then and sees it emerge from beneath his feet, maybe peers over the edge of the low guardrail as the train pulls into 
itself into view. It's good because it smells of the nice and slow. Ready? So it says the little sister nods. Lydia's face is grim while she watches the girls. Lucas studies the stretch of the train and sees a few migrants clustered near the tail end on the last five or six cars. One is standing silhouetting his body into an X. He and he waves at them. Luca waves back. Let's go, Soledad says. She and her sisters line up beside each other, smack in the center of the track. They squat, holding their packs beneath them, and wait for the right car. They look for one that spot on top, one that has a kind of grating you can walk on, sit on, grab onto. The first half of the train is all rounded tanker cars, so they wait and then follow quite slowly. So that tosses a pack and then follows it with the with one graceful, chaotic, suicidal lurch. She moves her body from the fixed to the moving, and she drops. Lydia can't tell how far it is, six feet, ten, and then the girl is instantly receding her form, growing smaller as she moves away with the train. Come on, she shouts back to her sister now. And then Rebecca, too, is gone, and Lydia realizes how quickly this has to happen that they have no time to weigh their options, no time to consider best practices. She rejects the awareness that all her life she's been afraid she would jump accidentally like that girl from her favorite movie novel from the cliffs from balconies from bridges. But now she knows with 100% certainty she knows she would never have jumped that the fear has always been an elaborate trick of her mind. Her heels are glued to the roadway. A week ago she'd have screamed at Luca to get back from there. She'd have told him not to stand so close to the edge. She'd have reached out and grabbed his arm to convince herself that he was safe, that he would stay put. Now she has to launch her child onto this moving train beneath them. The long cluster of migrants on the last few cars is approaching. They duck well to pass beneath the roadway, and then when they emerge on the other side, they're facing Lydia. Their arms open wide. Their gesture to her to toss backpack. She tosses the backpack and then she grabs Luca by his Tisha stands behind, stands behind him. Step over, she instructs him. Luca steps over without hesitation or, or objection. Her, hand, her heels are on the roadway. The toes of his little blue sneakers stick out and out into the air as the train passes beneath them. Luca humps to cover the dreadful noise of the train. Squat low, she tells him, just like the girls did. He squats low. If he jumps from this place and dies, it will be because he did exactly what Lydia told him to do. See, she feels as though she is watching herself into a nightmare doing a monstrous thing that makes her panic. A thing, thank, a thing, thank God, that she would never do in real life. And then just as she's about to reel him in to crush his small head against her chest, to wrap her, to wrap him in her arms and weep in relief that she awakened in time, she hears it with conviction, Sebastian's voice, cutting through all the external and internal voice. The voice then, when she opens her mouth and screams into Luca's ear, is almost not her own. Go, Luca, jump! Luca jumps at every molecule and lose by it, jumps with him. She sees him, the, tuck, the tight tuck of him, how small he is, how absurdly brave he is, his muscles and bones and his skin and hair, his thoughts and words and, and ideas, the very height bigness of his soul. She sees all of him in the moment when his body leaves the safety of the overpass and flies just momentarily upward because of the effort of his exertion until gravity catches him and he descends toward the top of the bestia. Lydia watches him drop, her eyes so big with fear that they've almost left her body, and then he lands like a cat on all fours with the velocity of his leap flashes with the velocity of the train, and he tumbles and rolls one big leg, space towards the edge of the train, 
piling his weight with it, and later tries to scream his name, but a voice has snagged, and uh, and then when one of the migrant men catches him, one big rough hand on Luca's arm, and the other on the seat of his pants, and Luca caught safe and swung onto the string, top stranger lifts his moving face to lifts his moving face to seek her, his eyes catch her eyes. I did it, maybe he screamed, maybe jump. Without a thought in her head, so look at she jumps. Thank you for listening to this chapter. Have a good week and stay safe.